Have you considered how your company's digital transformation plans might also increase its cyber risk? If not, you might want to join the Security Ledger and RSA Security on May 9th at 11 a.m. for Taking On Digital Transformation. In this webinar, I'll talk with RSA portfolio strategist Steve Schlarman about how IT leaders and executives at cutting-edge firms are addressing digital risk management as part of their overall digital transformation strategies. To learn more or register Point your browser to securityledger.com slash risk. This is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, the Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 144, lawmakers in 20 states this year are considering right-to-repair laws that would guarantee the owners of everything from smartphones and watches to tablet computers and tractors access to the service manuals, software, diagnostic tools, and replacement parts they need to service and maintain their stuff. There's a very real chance that all 20 of these laws will be defeated. This, after 17 nearly identical laws, were quietly killed off in state legislatures last year, not a single one making it to a floor vote. What's going on? Well, in part, it's a concerted lobbying effort by major technology, heavy equipment, telecommunications, and electronics firms. One of the go-to arguments of right-to-repair opponents is cybersecurity. Using targeted issue groups like the Security Innovation Center, these firms and industry groups convey dire warnings about hackers, cybercriminals, and other ne'er-do-wells stealing consumers' data or hacking into phones and other devices under the guise of repair. What's needed is for the information security community to speak up and loudly, and that's why this week I helped to launch a new group called SecureRepairs.org. Our mission is to connect cybersecurity experts with lawmakers and other legislative staff who need accurate information about the security risks posed by connected devices and the security benefits of the kinds of things that right-to-repair laws guarantee. Joining me in this effort are some of the world's top experts in cybersecurity and our guests this week, hardware hacker Joe Grand of Grand Idea Studio and the inimitable Kyle Weens of the repair site iFixit. Together, Kyle, Joe, and I are using this podcast to talk about secure repairs and its purpose and about how cybersecurity FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, is being used to derail right-to-repair laws in the States. I'm Kyle Weens. I started iFixit, the free repair manual. Uh, I'm Joe Grand. I'm a longtime hardware hacker and a professional design engineer. Kyle and Joe, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks. Oh, it's great to have you on. Okay, so we're here today um, and we're talking about an announcement that's going out tomorrow that you both have been helpful and instrumental with in your own ways. Uh, we're going to be talking about Secure Repairs, which is an effort that I started and again, with help from all of you to get the information security community involved in and speaking on behalf of right to repair legislation. Before we talk about that, 
Kyle, you are uh, in the trenches with right to repair legislation where it is being considered. Where are we uh, in this long process of trying to get one of these bills passed? Yeah, we are well along the legislative season. The, the lawmakers tend to consider new bills toward the beginning of the year. It's different in every state, but most of them are at the beginning of the year. So last week we had a hearing in Salem, Oregon on the Oregon bill, uh, and it went reasonably well, but Oregon has decided to table the bill uh, and, and pick it up next Next year, uh, we we have had hearings in Washington, and I've been to Olympia a couple times so far this year, talking with legislators. And we actually we made it really far in Washington. We made it out of our committee, the initial committee, uh, and then it went to the leadership committee, which is which is called rules. The kind of ominous sounding committee is where leadership gets to kind of do their horse trading. And we have been told that Microsoft asked the Democratic majority, they said, hey, we will support a tax increase if you will kill the right to repair bill. So Microsoft's chief legal officer, Brad Smith, is the one who who did the, the Washington bill in. And that's the kind of thing that's been happening to us is, is that we tend to die silently behind the scenes through politicking. Yeah, these have never, I don't think one of these bills has ever actually come up for a floor vote in, in any state house, has it, Kyle? Right, we have never gotten a floor vote. And that's kind of infuriating because you want to give the, the policymakers a chance to come out on the record and say that they support people's right to get their stuff fixed. Uh, and so every state, we're like, come on, let, let's just get a vote so this gets out in the public because dying you know, behind the scenes is how you know the opposition wants us to to you know wilt away quietly. You know, it's really funny about that when we have to say opposition when really everybody is in support for more secure products. Um, but the sort of folks in opposition and the lobbyists that are supporting these large companies are kind of using security, you know, a, a, as a way to kind of say that repairing is not right for people to do. It's just very weird how we're even butting heads when, you know, we're not as an infosec community, we're not politicians, but we're going up against politicians and kind of typical uh, corporates pack kind of way, you know, and it's really hard to defend ourselves. It's really interesting. And you're right, uh, Joe Grand. This is one of those issues where I think if you talk to people on the street or legislators, even individually, pretty much anybody, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. We should we should do that. And yet these laws, very pro-consumer, pro-competition laws never make it to a vote. And and it's because of the type of thing Kyle's talking about, kind of backroom right. deals where, you know, the people don't have a voice, but uh, lobbyists and PR firms and, and so on, and, and obviously big corporations do. And that's where these laws get put on the shelf. And, and I guess they hope you just don't come back the next year. And that's ex that's exactly it. It's about it's about delay, and they they use whatever arguments they can. The, the interesting thing about right to repair is that this is something that all humans are in favor of. Like, who doesn't want to be able to get their stuff fixed at a reasonable price? Who doesn't want competition in the marketplace? And I think as a result of them not having any good arguments, they're tending to steer toward arguments that confuse legislators. Uh, because if you think about it from the perspective of legislators, they're creating new rules, they're potentially changing society. And it's possible for them to screw up, and if they screw up, they're going to look pretty dumb. And so they tend to you know rely on the experts around them to give them advice and to explain things. And unfortunately, you know, the state legislatures, it's a, it's a part-time job. They don't have expert staff on every aspect of policy that they're working on. So they trust the people that are talking to them. And so you have lobbyists coming in and saying that there are security risks with this bill and they don't have the info security background to be able to combat that FUD. And so right. it, it's been a, a successful delaying tactic for them. Something else seems interesting, too, is that this this argument is not new, right? Like as as the InfoSec community or even as hackers on the good side, we've been fighting for access to 
documentation into hardware and, and uh, authorized components and the right to be able to take apart our devices and modify them and do what we want to do with them, whether it's fix them or make them do something else for, for years, if not decades. Um, it's just now it's come around again as this right to repair, but it's a constant battle. You know, like the DMCA has typically what the corporations have been using against people like us who want to repair our own devices, uh, or maybe, you know, just by implementing weak encryption or weak encoding or something to, to then make the person have to violate DMCA in order to do what they want to do. So it really is just, you know, an, an old discussion wrapped in new clothing. And I feel like besides bits and pieces of people fighting for things over time. And, and we could sort of talk about that, you know, like Bunny Wang hacking the Xbox a long time ago. And, yeah. And yeah. the QCAT the Q story from a while ago where companies are trying to prevent people from doing things. It's just a larger umbrella now, but it's, this, it's the same thing. We want to be able to repair our devices and do so in a manner where we have support from these large companies, not butting heads with them. I think this goes all the way back to responsible disclosure with the locks. Like that was almost the beginning of the security discussion, right? Is I have the vulnerability in this lock. Can I talk about it? And the lock companies were just livid that anyone would disclose a problem with their design. And we've, you know, we, over decades of talking about it, we've come to realize, no, actually, this is a good thing. Public disclosure is, is, is the right way to do this. Uh, but the legislators who are in these states were not involved in that discussion. And so all of this feels like InfoSec 101 to us, and it's a complete new world. They're, they're, all of them are acting like they're in the 1960s and we're asking for this terrifying information. You know, it's really interesting because, I mean, I've been writing about cyber for 16 years. So I, I've been around long enough to remember the responsible disclosure. And Joe Grant, I'm so glad we have you because you're, of course, your pedigree goes back to the days of the loft and at stake. So my guess is you had these type of conversations with companies, you know, 25, 30 years ago around all manner of different problems that you were discovering, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, nobody ever likes having their their baby called ugly. And um, that's basically what full disclosure is. But but it started as a way, especially at the loft, um, to find vulnerabilities and things, but really let consumers, the end users of these products where we found problems to be in control of how they want to fix the problem, how they can support themselves, because we can't really rely. And we learned back then, and it's it's the same today. We can't rely on these large corporations to really act in our best interests. We're customers of theirs. We're the end user. But technically nowadays, like we don't even control the the products. We're not allowed to use them as we see fit. And I remember back at the loft, we had released some vulnerabilities. And, you know, at first some companies were like, that's eh, not important. No one's ever going to, you know, hack this thing or exploit this vulnerability. Um, but then they started threatening to, to sue us to keep us quiet of like, if you release this, you know, mm -hmm. X is going to happen and, and trying to mm -hmm. squelch research. When in reality, what we were doing of finding vulnerabilities or modifying hardware to do other things was actually increase the lifespan of the product, make it better, make us more secure by sharing this information. And it actually was helpful to the customers and, and to, the, to the manufacturers. It just took them, I don't know, 10 years to realize like, oh, the full disclosure thing or responsible disclosure um, is actually a good thing and, ben and benefits everybody. So I think with, with Right to Repair, I'm hoping that we can get to that point as well where the, the corporations maybe now they don't want people to open up their devices. They don't want to release documentation. They don't want to create authorized components because that just is so much more work on their side, right? Like we've actually seen Apple come out and say, well, we don't want people to fix their devices because that that cuts into our bottom line. Uh, they're not going to buy new devices. And then they also have to create and manufacture and keep track of stock of all these uh, other parts. So it really is a financial 
motivator, I think, a lot of times for companies to not support right of right to repair. But I hope we can get to the point where they realize it's actually good for everybody. Yeah. And I mean, I know, Kyle, you've talked about the different kind of a higher bar that uh, California sets for device makers as well in terms of warranty and, and parts. This is something that you would think in a you know national economy like the United States that there would be conformity uh, across the states on things like how long you have to continue servicing products that you buy. But in fact, there's there's a huge difference. And Kyle, talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. California is a very interesting warranty law. It's the Beverly Song Warranty Act. And it says that manufacturers have to make repair available for products for seven years from the date that they stop selling the product. So that's really interesting because uh, it has led to companies treating products differently in California than they, than they treat them elsewhere. Like I, I use a 2012 MacBook Pro. Uh, it's a fantastic machine. Uh, Apple uh, supports that in, the, in uh, most of the country for five years. But in California, they've provided service for seven years from the point of sale. And that's that's been a really uh, big consumer benefit. As you guys pointed out, you know, cybersecurity has become sort of the, the point of the spear here as lobbyists and, and industry groups and manufacturers are looking to find any reason to not do these right to repair bills that seemingly have a, a tremendous amount of public support. Kyle, I mean, you've been dealing with this and, and Joe, you've testified on this as well. Break down a little bit for us. What What is exactly the argument that industry is trying to make vis-a-vis uh, -vis repair and, and cyber? There's a spectrum of, of things. One thing that they said recently, which I was blown away, is they said that the repair community is asking for the source code to these products, uh, which I thought was a phenomenal misdirection. That If you're not familiar, the bill says that companies need to make, need to make diagnostic software and security patches available uh, to, the, to the public and to independent techs. But then for them to turn around and say, no, actually, they're asking for the source code uh, just shows how technically inept some of them are. And then and then clearly the lawmakers you know, don't, don't understand the difference. Um, some of the more real arguments that they've brought up have, have just been you know concerns about about um, uh, safety and security so I, I had a, a legislator ask me this morning well I've heard about cell phone uh, you know kiosks in the mall sometimes stealing people's pictures off of their devices and so Joe I would be curious your your take how would you respond to, to someone saying well is, is this going to you know make us uh, you know give up the data on our on our devices? Well, I think there's a difference between security vulnerabilities and somebody that wants to repair their device, right? So there's always going to be security vulnerabilities and something like that. I don't exactly know. I'd have to think about how to answer it in a in a political way where he would get it, because a lot of times, and what we learned when when we testified as the loft back in the day um, to the Senate about computer security is you're basically talking to most of the time non-technical grandparents, right? And it's like trying to sort of give them the right answers, but you're always going to have security problems. The thing is that that shouldn't interrupt how somebody chooses to repair their device. Uh, you know, there's like, there's what I, what I actually see is, is not the most products that are out there from a hardware perspective it, are so poorly designed from a security perspective anyway. Like if you actually do have physical access to the device, you can compromise it. But that's, that's the that's the manufacturer's side to worry about. As repair person, people or hackers or whatever, that's a different thing. You know, if somebody has physical access, yes, you could hack something, but that's not the point of right to repair. 
Right. It, and it's kind of, it's sort of, you know, the fact that somebody can can conjure a scary situation or a scary scenario doesn't necessarily justify denying the public the access to a lower cost competitor. So for example, you know, a repair guy you let into your house to fix your washing machine could steal your jewelry or, or attack you and, you know, and, and harm you. That is a possibility. It could always happen when you let somebody into your house. But the benefits of society for having independent repair people come in and fix your appliances and, and not having to always go to the vendor who made the machine are, are, you know, are manifest. We all know what those are. It's kind of like, well, we've come up with a scenario in which this is a bad thing and therefore we shouldn't do it. And it's like, no, that's that's not the standard. The standard shouldn't be that you can imagine some scenario in your head that, that sounds scary and unfortunate. It's what is the broad benefit to society for doing this? And, and obviously with, with independent repair, there's a huge benefit. Well, you know, designing secure products is hard and these large companies know that. Um, But if you look at Apple and Samsung and Microsoft and these companies that are making game consoles and mobile phones, it seems like they're taking the steps to design things securely. And when you look at like the secure enclave or Qualcomm or or trusted execution environments and, and security features built into chips, there are things there. And if security is done properly, in theory, getting physical access to the device to do standard repair things won't affect security of the products. It's just what I'm seeing is a lot of companies are not taking those actual proper steps uh, and then just saying, oh, we can't, you know, physical access is going to, someone's going to hack our device if they try to repair it, which obviously isn't true. They're just either lazy or don't want to spend the money to actually do it properly. Right. I wonder if, yeah, I mean, because you imagine if all of a sudden we had the diagnostic software to hook up to your, your HVAC system uh, and, and then I hand that to you, maybe you're going to find a vulnerability in the hardware by, by inspecting how the diagnostic software talks to the hardware. Uh, but that's not necessarily a vulnerability that, that that is going to be a vulnerability that existed before, right? Yeah, well, I think the problem is that we, you know, we're we're in the infosec community, but most people that are doing repair and that the people that we're fighting for are not in the infosec community. They want to repair their John Deere tractor. They want to fix something. They want to extend the lifespan of something. They're not going to be looking for vulnerabilities. Uh, but for those who are, that ends up being a service. It's like, oh, great, we found some problem in something. The thing is that the companies think, you know, we have to give out the source code. We have to do this and do that. That's not the case. Even having a schematic would be useful, having some authorized components. So a person doesn't have to go to some sketchy third-party repair shop to replace their battery or to replace their touchscreen, which is then using some unauthorized component that possibly has been compromised earlier in the supply chain. It, it's, I think, simple steps that can that can be done and, and supported by these large companies. It's just, you know, explaining it. And, and again, like what Kyle said right at the beginning is getting past this red tape of politicking, which is not what we do, right? We're not politicians. We're not paid to to create laws and and defend defend what's happening. But now we're we're, we're thrust into this world because the results of these right to repair laws end up not only affecting InfoSec, but aff- affecting everybody. You know, the electronics industry and the technology industry through groups like CompTIA, they're the ones who are kind of lobbying against these laws behind the scene. And and so they're making a number of different arguments uh, around the cybersecurity risk. So I thought since I've got both you on the line, we'd kind of like go down them and just sort of defudify them. The the first one is the source code versus firmware argument. Many of these laws ask for access to firmware, which would be like software updates and, 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 um, you know, copies of the software that runs on devices. Do do either or both of you just want to take a a swing at sort of explaining for people why firmware and, and source code are, are not the same thing? 
Sure, I can take this one. Uh, yeah, so I'm a software engineer. I write code, uh, and so that code is generally somewhat human readable. And then when I'm when I'm done with the human readable thing, I, I run it through the compiler, which is the computer turning what I have written into ones and zeros that the computer can actually execute. Uh, and that that compiled executable, you think of it on Windows, would be a .exe, and, and that executable is obfuscated. It's very, very hard to go from that executable back to the human readable source code. What we're talking about in terms of firmware updates, that would be, say, the software that runs your your Wi-Fi router, uh, that is that compiled bytecode. It's not the original kind of engineering document source code that you start with. It's kind of the difference between the blueprint and the the sort of like built out house. <laughs> We're just asking for for the the you know security update. We're not asking for the you know original source code. Okay, so the second argument that they make is, you know, by providing access to schematics and documentation and diagnostic software, that you are opening a door that that malicious actors, hackers, cyber attackers can step through and do, you know, in brackets, bad things. We don't know what those bad things are. They're never too specific when they're talking about this, but just bad stuff. So I would I would classify that as security through obscurity, which basically is if you make everything obscure and nobody can see it, uh, you know, wave your magic hands, then nothing bad is going to happen. That's kind of the thought. No, that's that's true, isn't it? Isn't that uh, isn't that right, Joe? No, of course not. But that's you know, from an infosec world, we know that we know security through yes. obscurity is a myth. But most people don't know that. We see that in products every day where some device has, like I mentioned before, bad encryption or some encode using XOR. Uh, as their security mechanism. I'm, I'm using air quotes, but you can't see it. Um, but it's the general public doesn't know that security through obscurity doesn't work. So by preventing somebody from getting access to schematics or this or that, that does nothing to prevent you know, a focused attacker on breaking security of something. All it does is make it harder for a legitimate user to help them repair their devices. And and actually, let me just let me just append on that. What, what is really interesting and, and would what I wish folks would bring up when they're talking to legislators is look at the companies who make up these lobbying groups, you know, the D-Link and TP-Link and so on, go and check how many open CVEs they have, how many vulnerabilities in various versions of their product that are open and unpatched and for how long. And you're not going to like what you see. I mean, I'd say in general, these vendors are doing a better job with 10 out of 10 criticality vulnerabilities, but there are a lot of six and seven and eights out there that are unpatched and have been for months. So as they're, as they're lobbying to kill this law on the, on the grounds of security, where is their commitment as a company to fixing holes that people have already identified in their products? Yeah, exactly. Okay. The, the really interesting argument, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, that I've heard recently from some of the great folks at the Security Innovation Center. This is this kind of lobbying front group that has a stable of credentialed cybersecurity experts who are going, yeah, it doesn't really exist, right? It's like a, it's like a, it's like a strategic PR firm. One of the interesting arguments they're putting forward is that just repair in any way violates the integrity of the OEM model, that manufacturers have spent millions of dollars to design these products and build supply chains to provide the components to make these products and that any repair violates that even i heard of experts say even to open a device and see what's inside of it you have violated the oem model of that uh, manufacturer gag me with a spoon 
And they talk about it as if you have broken the law, like you have done something dire and terrible by opening up and seeing what is inside this magical device that you bought. I'm really interested in your thoughts on, I mean, this seems kind of like a really novel thing, but I just, I keep hearing it. And it's almost like, I think they think that if they say it enough, it will just, people will just accept it as, oh, that is outrageous. You shouldn't be able to do that. Well, the problem is they're right. If they say it enough, it will become something like that, right? I mean, we've seen that happen over and over again. My first thought, Kyle might have an answer to this, but didn't the automotive industry go through this exact same thing back when the garages and shops were fighting to get automotive documentation to repair devices, right? I mean, isn't that the same thing? We're just now dealing with small embedded systems instead of giant Absolutely. vehicles? It was the exact same arguments. Uh, they they argued that if right to repair passed, then you know people would be able to track down their victims by hacking the software in their cars and all kinds of crazy things. And of course, we've had right to repair on the books with updated uh, code for automobiles since 2012, and none of that has happened. Shocker. The most important thing to me is is even just above and beyond right to repair. It's like we buy these things. We should own the things we buy. End of story. And anybody who says otherwise, it's like, are we just leasing the product? Are we just renting the product? And and we're letting these companies have tight yes, control of exactly right. what I mean, we do. It seems ridiculous. Kyle, frankly, I may be missing one. Are there, are there other cyber arguments that you've heard that, that we should defudify while they brought you on the line? Well, I thought one interesting argument that the uh, Security Innovation Center guy brought up was he said that the supply chain is very secure. And by opening it up or or repairing or by inserting aftermarket parts in there, you're you're, uh, upsetting their supply chain security. (laughs) Well, the problem is the supply chain is not secure, even from the manufacturers that are making the products. But I feel like as end users, we're less, we're not worried about that. I'm worried about where I get my touchscreen from, who's putting in the new battery. Those things are not from a secure supply chain. Those are being manufactured by companies in China we know nothing about. Uh, they're They're clones of the legitimate devices. Those could be implanted with malicious functionality. So basically by not having support by these manufacturers for right to repair, we're in, we're maybe unintentionally weakening security by putting in stuff into our hardware that shouldn't be there. If these companies were offering those things, that would be you know, that would tighten the supply chain. But the excuse of supply chain security, supply chain security doesn't exist either. That's a whole other argument for another day. <laughs> sure. But you, but even these major companies, they don't really know where they're getting their components from. Right. But clearly, if we could get it from them, then we would have a trusted option right now. That's uh, right. Exactly. The Wild West. And Kyle, I know you've made that point too, which is actually their attempt to lock down the supply chain and deny people aftermarket parts exacerbates the very problem that they're identifying, which is people using dodgy, third, third rate, unreliable, potentially dangerous parts because they can't get their hands on the real thing. Right. If you grant them the argument, you say, okay, maybe parts could have malicious hardware in them, then great. Provide me with a secure way of getting legitimate parts. So in response to all this, um, I've set up, and, and Joe, you're, you're, you're a signatory to this group, securerepairs.org. Um, it's, a, it's a way for the information security community to kind of come together and, and speak with one voice, and also to try and connect folks like you, Joe, um, with legislators so that they have reliable information and at least can make decisions based on good information rather than bad information. Joe, I'd, I'd like to, because you've actually testified in these in some of these hearings before, um, what are some of the challenges um, a, as you go into these hearing rooms and, and talk to legislators about this issue? It's kind of a, it's kind of an esoteric issue for many of them. It is. And I, I think the problem 
Um, the problem's twofold. One, like I mentioned, is the legislators are like talking to your grandparents. So you have to distill things like Kyle said. You have to, you know, you don't want to get too detailed, but you have to explain it in a way that they understand, um, which I kind of liken it to when my parents were trying to convince my grandmother to get a microwave, right? She was like, no way, I'm not touching that piece of technology. And then she got it and she's like, this is amazing, right? So it's like- <laughs> If you if you share in 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah, you share the right information, you get people to realize it, that it's important. The other thing, though, is that while we talk about the legislators, you have all of their staff and the staff are younger entries into the political world where they probably have a little better grasp of what's going on technically, but you still have to convince them to help convince the legislators to actually write the stuff. So really, the challenge is in translating technical things, technical terms into something they can understand. And I feel like as InfoSec, a lot of times we focus on the details. I do all the time, not really thinking at the higher level. So I think we have to like, as we go up against the, these political groups and the legislators to really distill it down. And Kyle has that wording, Kyle has that wording down. And I think it, it, it's going to take some work for the rest, for the rest of us to understand how to do that. InfoSec is an engineering heavy, engineering centric field, right? And I'm I'm not, I don't have an engineering background, and but I've been doing, I've been talking to you guys for 16 years, so it's like I'm, I've been schooled. But I'm always struck by that too, which is, you know, InfoSec people are puzzle solvers and and breakers, and and they really have an engineering mindset, which is amazing with discrete problems, but sometimes it can be hard at the sort of level of policy to get them to sort of see the forest for the trees, you know? Exactly. Um, Kyle, what do you think, um, as we look at this cybersecurity argument, there have been a whole bunch of op-eds and kind of radio pieces that the Security Innovation Center has has seeded out there, often in papers in, in state capitals like Sacramento and Albany and, and Springfield, Illinois, where we've got right to repair laws um, uh, pending. What's the biggest message the information security community needs to get out uh, when it, as it concerns right to repair to, to some of these lawmakers? Yeah, I would say the concern is not necessarily this astroturfing group. The concern is these lobbyists that are in the capitals every day. Uh, and the you know we're a little bit I think trained to think that money is influencing politics in terrible ways. It's actually pretty transparent. I mean, the, the manufacturers <laughs> are able to hire these lobbyists who are in the capital every day, and what what it really is doing is it gives them time and it gives them access. So they're talking right. with legislators ten times more than we are. I was at this hearing in Salem last week, and there were like eight different lobbyists from everybody from John Deere to the appliance people talking about security problems with fridges to you know Apple and and CompTIA and those kind of folks. So in order to combat that, we need to just be present and vocal. And we need people writing their legislators. We need people. Uh, I think it would probably be a very good thing for a security expert to reach out to a legislator and say, hey, you know, this is what I do. I would be happy to give you, you know, input, expert input for free on any topics that you want. Just ask me. You know, let me know when the bill comes by, you're confused, and I'll give you a, you a third-party opinion. So I think by engaging with the legislators, we have the opportunity to be you know, trusted experts and combat that influence of money. What's interesting about that, too, is, is from the InfoSec world, from the hacker world, you know, a lot of us sort of started as hackers trying to question the status quo and kind of question authority and help change the world. And this is actually a great example. And one of the reasons, of course, I'm involved in it, because I, it's, a, it's a very worthy cause for us and everybody who follows us, is we have an actual opportunity to kind of break outside of our own bubble and help shape things outside of that to the, to the regular people, right? And, and to the legislators and really change something that's going to affect 
affect the world in a positive way. So we can kind of, you know, again, I'll use my air quotes of hack the system, but we have to be out there doing stuff and be vocal and writing the letters and going in person and all of these things, which a lot of us aren't comfortable doing because that's not what we, that's not what we signed up for. But I think that's, you know, it's a great opportunity for us as a, as a community to try and do that and go up against these people that really know nothing about security um, or being paid to do it. And how I sort of see it as just, you know, another large corporation with a bunch of people wearing suits fighting against this, the small guys, the hacker world, and, and, and really the consumers as a whole uh, are trying to, you know, they're trying to push us down. And I got to say, it really does work. I, I had a question from a legislator who had some security questions and I was emailing with her, uh, their aide over the weekend. And I sent her that the letter. Joe, Joe wrote a, a very nice two-page letter kind of going over the issues in, in plain English. And it was very helpful and very effective. So, I mean, just just that letter that you wrote is like a very successful tool at getting out there and countering the FUD. Yeah. And imagine if, if everybody wrote one. I guess here's the loaded question is, is Paul, how do people find out how, how to get to their legislators? How do they get involved in, you know, in this whole in this whole fight? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Joe. They can go to securerepairs.org. That's S-E-C-U-R-E-P-A-I-R-S dot org. And right when you get there, there's a join button where you can sign up to uh, be a supporter of Secure Repairs. And what we're going to do is, because there are, uh, Kyle, how many how many states is Right to Repair still alive in? It's, uh, oh, still alive? Gosh, probably half out of the 20. Yeah, so maybe 10 states. states. Yeah. So there's 10 states where there are hearings ongoing, might be going on, like in Massachusetts, where I am through the summer. We're going to connect you up based on where you are with stuff that's going on around you. As Joe did, write letters. If you can go in and actually testify in person as, as a resident or a business owner or, or employee in your state and say, I'm a cybersecurity expert and I'm here to talk truth to you about information security, that makes a really big impact on on legislators and can go a long way to countering some of the paid for kind of disinformation or bad information. So that's kind of what we're going to do is try and connect up security, information security experts around the country um, with folks both like Kyle and, and Joe, uh, but also with, you know, legislators in their state who are considering these laws as, as we speak. And I just went on the website and filled in my info. So now I'm on the list. Ah, good man. Excellent. You're a supporter. All right. And I, I kind of saw it as sort of a not in our name type thing. You know, like you, you hear them make these arguments and you're like, you know what, if these, if, if you're going to vote down or if you're going to like kill off right to repair and committee, I guess we can't really stop you from doing that. But let's, we're not going to let you as a community do it in the name of cybersecurity. You know, we're just, we're not going to, we're not going to go that way. And we're going to make it really clear that there aren't cybersecurity risks here. So if you kill it, you're going to have to find another excuse to do it, but it's not going to be security. If you're an information security professional, hacker, researcher, executive, any user of any product that you pay money for, any user of any product you pay money for, uh, who are concerned about your rights as an owner and concerned about real security, not not FUD, securerepairs.org. Sign up there and uh, we will connect you with right to repair stuff that's going on in your area so that you can lend your voice to the chorus. And Kyle Weens and Joe Grand, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to speak with us on Security Ledger Podcast. Thanks for your support. And thanks for starting this, this organization. I think it's, uh, ho- hopefully it's going to make some waves. I hope so too. 
Joe Grand is the founder of Grand Idea Studio, and Kyle Weens is the founder of iFixit.com, the repair site. They were here talking with me about SecureRepairs.org, a new site to galvanize information security industry professionals in support of the right to repair. 